This evening we're talking about fallible interpretations of the infallible. First uh, Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, which we ought to know very well now. And of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do, the heads of them were 200, and all their brethren were at their commandment. Worldview training is not about opinions. It's biblical instruction made relevant for today. It's biblical truth put into practice. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason to the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And it was God's invitation in Isaiah 118, Come now and let us reason together. In God's word, we have truths that never change for a world that is always in change due to a multitude of discoveries and from generation to generation, new people coming on the scene. It's sad to say, but humanity does have a difficult time learning from its past. And we're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. Well, that's just precedence. We see that. That's part of the history of humanity. Not to learn, but always to start from scratch. Learn the hard way. We have truths from God that are just as relevant today as they were written 2,000 years ago and more. Now, Satan, Satan's tactic. His strategy would have us ignore the understanding of our times. He would convince us that it's godlier to be irrelevant than relevant. That's a word I've used at uh, missions conferences and different places I've preached at. Satan would blind us from thinking and teaching God's word without application for today's questions and answers. Well, there's more fallacies to avoid, and that's why the title here is Fallible Interpretations of the Infallible. Offering good answers, relevant application, and sound reasonings reasonings requires good thinking skills. And I've, I've dealt with that quite a bit already. It'd be convenient if good thinking skills and good thinking could be reduced to one or two simple rules. Now, that would really make it easy, and We'd be happy about that. But good thinking skills are not the product of one or two thinking skills. And really, when you think about it, that makes us vulnerable. And why is that? Inclination to see, to always seek the lower denominator of effort, right? I mean, anyone who's got kids, you're always dealing with that. Lazy, careless, proud, and thought, unthoughtful, and... Yes, we grow up and we overcome more than we, we did when we were teenagers, but nonetheless, it's still there. It's a characteristic of humanity. God is constantly challenging, working within us to give more and work harder and convict us and challenge us. Whereas Satan has designed our current world with, as I mentioned before, information overload, which is designed to wear people down. 
and get them to resort to decisions guided by emotion and ego rather than rational reasons and intreatable spiritual insights. Now, in a previous lesson, I listed and described a number of fallacies to avoid when making conclusions. And this evening, I'm going to wrap that up fallacies being flawed reasons for making certain decisions or drawing interpretations of some sort. And I really appreciate the, the feedback over the last couple of weeks of uh, just how important learning these fallacies are. These are fallacies to know about to avoid. Now, the first fallacy to start out with tonight is known as the genetic fallacy. It's also known as the fallacy of origins. This is the reasoning that if the source or origin of a claim is not reputable, then the claim must be dismissed. Who cares what the claim is? It didn't come from the right source, so it's got to be wrong. The controversy about Christmas and Easter are good examples of this. Some like to celebrate Christmas and Easter. Others dismiss Christmas and Easter because of its origin. It's pagan in origin, as they think. Therefore, it's got to be morally wrong to celebrate the birthday of Christ on the same day. And some go so far as to conclude that celebrating Easter is a celebration of the goddess Ishtar. And the thinking is, regardless of your knowledge of this information or what your motive is to honor Christ on these days, it's still sin to celebrate Christmas because of its origin and Easter because of its origin. Paul's answer to this in Romans chapter 14, verse 5 is, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Romans 14, 14, Paul says, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. In other words, the origin of things does not determine how or who you should worship. That has nothing to do with it. In fact, if you consider the pagan origin of the names of every one of our weekdays, uh-oh, now we're in trouble. Can't celebrate anything now because we'd be worshiping some pagan god. Because after all, we'd have to find a celebration on Saturday. Oh, no. Let's try Monday. Oh, no, we can't use Monday. Tuesday? No, what? Every day of the week. Oh, no. You know, it was rather interesting there. With that kind of thinking, you get pushed into a corner that gets smaller. Pretty soon you discover there is no day you can celebrate. I don't, know why, I don't know why the pagans and the atheists have the license and, and, and it's okay for them to claim all the days of the year to make any celebration they want, but not the Christian, uh-uh, because of its origin. Well, that's the fallacy of origin. It gets pretty ridiculous. But Paul's, Paul's statement here in Romans 14, 14 about, hey, I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus, there's nothing unclean of itself. Now, he wasn't going to go out and chew a, uh, a piece of pork in front of a Jewish rabbi. <laughs> no, he wasn't, he wasn't promoting offense. But he was giving instruction, hey, let's, uh, here's how to think about this. Uh, 
He said, I know who the true and living God is. I'm not worshiping Ishtar or any other pagan God. I know the God that I worship, regardless of what day I choose. Now, there's another fallacy. It's circumstantial ad hominem fallacy, similar to ad hominem. This is similar to genetic fallacy. And this is the fallacy of dismissing a claim because of who said it. For example, if Satan says something, it's automatically deemed wrong. <laughs> nope, that's got to be untrue. And this, this thinking really fails to acknowledge that, you know, even Satan can say something true. The wicked can say something true. Consider what Luke 4.41 says. And the devil also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. Uh-oh. Truth is not determined by who says it. Truth is determined by God and what the claim is regardless of who says it. But if the atheists say the sun is hot, oh no, the sun can't be hot anymore because they're atheists. No, no, that's ridiculous. We have to listen to what is being said, not who is saying it, just to be consistent and careful. Fallacies of persuasion. Boy, this is a, this is a fun one. I have personal experience with this one. Uh, it's important to know this, this fallacy, all these fallacies it's important to know, but when studying the Bible, we don't look for consensus and poll people. What do you think the Bible says? Truth by groupthink or truth by authority or the fallacy of persuasion. Uh, there's different names for this particular fallacy. Actually, these are persuasion tactics. Uh, rather than just a means of determining truth. It was believed at one time that the earth was flat by most people in the day. Uh, on one account that I came across, Copernicus, uh, it's claimed, recanted his claim that the sun revolved around the sun. The earth revolved around the sun, not the other way around. And then under threat of de death, he recanted and said, when it was safe, it's true nonetheless. It doesn't matter what you say. It's still true. It's not going to change. He's the one who also said, that is, quote by Copernicus, to know that we know what we know and to know what we do not know what we do not know. That is true knowledge. You have to think about one, that one, but really there's, there's a profound application of Scripture and God here. And I've said it in different ways, but... You have to, you have to, it's just as important to know what you don't know as well as what you do know. Otherwise, we get in trouble. Now, majority opinion didn't change uh, the discovery of truth by Copernicus or anybody else. The first uh, seminar of each semester that I was in graduate school, we always introduced ourselves, faculty and uh, students. And Dr. Carr would get up and declare, and yes, evolution is a fact. And then the entire room would go up into applause, whistling shouts of acclamation. That was only for my benefit because I was sitting there. I'm sure they never did that before or after. 
Now, the tactic was persuasion. They're going to, by peer pressure and ridicule, they're going to make me agree with them. And, uh, and then they started a campaign to kick me out of the department and put rules on me that no one else had to abide by. Had to take another class in evolution, which ended up just me by myself. An entire semester class set up just for one student to convince me the errors of my way. And then they put a gag order on me uh, for six months. And then one day, the head of the department, uh, prior to those restrictions, he called me in to rebuke me about some articles I had written about creation science. And I asked him, well, what in particular do you have a problem with in the creation model? And he said, oh, these are non-scientists. And he starts going on ad hominem arguments, just slandering the character. And these are not scientists. And so I asked him again, well, what in particular do you disagree with? And he repeated his ad hominem arguments. If anything, that just shows being a scientist doesn't mean that you are not prone or air prone to fallacies. There's still mistakes being made and bias built in. Learning how to think well and to recognize fallacies is important for anyone who's serious about studying and interpreting anything, including the Bible. It's just as important in theology as it is for science. And in the absence of good thinking skills, we're doomed. We're doomed to be led by our passions and fallacies rather than by reason and the spirit of God. It's evident from the differences in interpretations among godly men. And that's been my my entry uh, point question here. Why do godly men uh, disagree? Given that... They have good character, discipline, spiritual discernment, sincerity. They want to serve God. That's not an issue. And yet there's disagreement. Why is that? Thinking skills. It is something deficient in our training, in our education systems. You don't get it. Here's another fallacy, the out-of-context fallacy. This is the fallacy of the Bible says right here, therefore it's indisputable. What they mean is the words are right there and what they do is associate with their interpretation. Therefore, I'm right because the words are right there. One verse out of context is not good doctrine. It's poor hermeneutics. That's the science of interpretation. Now, you have to point out, that doesn't mean that that the doctrine is wrong. You can be right for the wrong reason. But there is a fallacy of being out of context. A good student of the Bible will ask questions and search for exceptions to the interpretation. That's part of the testing process. It's important to do a thorough topical search. Expository studies require topical studies. Oh, well, I bring that up because there, are, there is the thinking, it's got to be this or that. You've got to be topical or expository or verse by verse. And so people get into the false dichotomy, which is another fallacy I, po- I pointed out. Actually, you have to do both. It's still possible 
to overlook a verse and not recognize a verse's significance without proper context. For example, this past year I saw the significance of Peter's explanation of Joel's prophecy in in a different light. And that's because I was teaching the book of Revelation. We were dealing with the last days. And the statement caught my attention before. For years I've seen this and, and thought, well, it must be, you know, prophecies are not always fulfilled at one day, but over time. And I found it, uh, whenever I got to Acts chapter 2 and around verse 17, I, was, I, I would teach um, about Pentecost. The context is about Pentecost, God's empowerment of his church and the mission of the church. And I really didn't give much attention to the phrase in the last days. But in teaching the book of Revelation, in the last days, boy, that was, that was such a, a wonderful breakthrough. And now it has so much more meaning to me in the context. And I'm talking about not just context of a couple verses or or a paragraph, or a chapter. I'm talking about context of the whole Bible. We are in the last days. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. I've never heard that mentioned before. I've always heard, we're in the last days. I, 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 I've, a good question to ask when that's brought up is, when did it start? <laughs> oh, I got a verse for that, Acts 2.17. You got great expository preachers who fail to recognize. They fail to see the value of topical, topical, topical. And so they don't look at all the verses in the Bible. One of the first studies I had with Brother Brian, the first assignment was look up all the words with all the verses with the word body, soul, and spirit in it. There's over a thousand verses. I didn't think he really meant it. By week three, yeah, I realized, okay. So I went through every verse, categorized every verse, and looked at every verse, and thought about every verse, prayed over every verse. Literally, one of the most important things I discovered about that is, you know, if you don't look at every verse, you it might be that one last verse. You know, it's, it's like... Uh, it's like swimming across the English Channel and you get halfway and you say, I don't think I can make it. And you turn around. <laughs> How close. If you had just looked up one more verse, you may have found all oh, the answer. The, some key that unlocked some amazing insights. So you really don't know something until you look it all up. That's why most, most books written on the body, soul, spirit, uh, pretty soon it becomes apparent they're just parroting each other. They're copying what someone else said. and They're not studying the Bible. They're studying about what somebody said about the Bible. They're not studying the Bible. And it becomes pretty apparent when you study the Bible, you can recognize those things. Driving an interpretation without questioning its biblical context leads to false doctrine. Now, some of these doctrines are critical. Some of them are not so bad. For example, one that's really uh, critical is James chapter 2, verse 24, which says, Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Oh, man. 
You ever talk to a legalist with that passage? I always take them to this verse before they take me there because I know where we're headed. And I like to use that. And I've, I've taught here from the pulpit and, and many Bible studies how to set the hook because they're going to try and weasel out of this once, once you show them how to understand it. Now this verse, what they'll say is, clearly works and faith are necessary to be justified in order to be saved. And so I ask the question, you're, so you're saying that this verse says, that works and faith are necessary to be saved. Yes. So you're saying, you have to say this several times in different ways to set the hook. So you're saying that a man is justified in the eyes of God by their works. Yes. So you're saying that a man is saved because he's justified in the eyes of God by works and faith. Yes. You've got to say this several different ways. Of course, that's their interpretation. They say, well, I believe that this is justification in the eyes of men by works, justified in the eyes of God by faith. God doesn't have to see your works. He's looking right inside of you right now. He doesn't care what your works are. He's looking inside of you. And in fact, Romans eleven six says, if it's by grace, then it's not of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it, is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more grace. There seems to be a contradiction here that has to get resolved. So James chapter 2 is not a good passage for determining what this is all about. And by the way, I don't see the word salvation or the mention of salvation here. I see justification. Well, Romans chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 is a great tiebreaker because what shall we say then? That Abraham, our father, is pertaining to the flesh hath found. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Salvation is not by works. It's not by works and faith. It's by faith alone. Works cannot justify you in the eyes of God. He's looking at the heart. So here we have, as, as, as far as the fallacy of out of context, you have to take the whole Bible in context. But you see, this happens all the time. People say, oh, here's a verse, and it supports my, it, it's, it has the right words and the right uh, statement that will support my opinion. And so here it is, here's the verse, ignore the rest of the passages. The next fallacy is the agreement fallacy. And this fallacy concludes that the evidence of right thinking is evidenced by agreement with your interpretation. If you agree, if, 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 you, if you really come to insight about the truth, you'll agree with me. That's how I know that you're really being sincere and honest because you're agreeing with me. The, right, the, the expectation of right thinking is agreement with someone who disagrees with you. Now, that's terrible thinking. And I, I, I've, I, I've seen this quite a bit. This is a common one. I've, I've received letters over the years expressing disagreement with things I say, which is fine, and I welcome that. And I love to discuss interpretations and conclusions. In fact, uh, even in Missouri with the pastor, uh, we were, he, was, he was lamenting. Oh. And, you know, you really can't talk about these things <laughs> that we're talking about. Because you get shut down, your spirituality is in question, etc., etc. 
uh, a number, quite a few years ago, uh, from someone in the church who's no longer here. He wrote a ten-page letter to me, defending biblical authority and inerrancy. Now, that was not the point of disagreement, but it took ten pages because, you see, if I, if I, if I would change my opinion and agree with him on one little point, then I would be in agreement with biblical inerrancy and infallibility. <laughs> if I disagree with him on this other point, then I, don't, uh, I, I disagree with biblical authority. <laughs> you see, this is the fallacy. You have to agree with me or you're wrong. If I didn't agree with him, then I wasn't being sincere about being true to God's word, about believing in biblical inerrancy, about caring for truth. And all that came through in his letter. He was challenging me and telling me I wasn't being sincere. If I was, I would agree with him. He didn't say it that way. You're going to agree with me. <laughs> but that's what it came down to. I had no choice. I had no, there was no, no option. There's no out. I either disagree and therefore I... Uh, am an anti-Bible inerrancy guy, or I agree with him, and now I believe in biblical authority. That's a fallacy. Now, there's the fallacy of the loaded question. Uh, by the the letter I just spoke about had another fallacy in that, and there was the lo- that is the fallacy of the loaded question. Loaded questions are you get all the time, but. One of the famous ways of identifying that or a question that really illustrates this is, uh, Gary, have you stopped beating your wife? Uh, that's a loaded question. Uh, do you say yes or no to that? <laughs> you know, it, it already, it already Im- implies an accepted premise there that's false in the beginning. That's a loaded question. Uh, when I was sitting on a creation science uh, panel up at uh, Northwest Arkansas uh, NWAC, NWAC um, there was the group of the Dirty Dozen that I talk about every now and then. He just loaded up his question. He went on and on with about 10 sentences and premises that were absolutely ridiculous and all the flaws in, in creation science. And then he pops out his question. And I asked the rest of the panel, I said, do you mind if I take this one? <laughs> the first thing I wanted to do, there were two ways to answer the question. I had to expose what he just did. I said, well, uh, Doug, I'm not sure if I ought to begin with all the false statements you made or just answer your question first. And that is how the beginning of the exposure took place. So I answered the question and I exposed the, the falsehoods that were put, it at, put out. That's the loaded fallacy, the loaded question fallacy. And it's important that, uh, hey, we be honest, be open, true. Uh, you, you can't hear what someone's saying if you're already speaking for them, thinking for them, and making them answer a question that you want. You see that all the time, especially in the journalism of, and media today. The fallacy of good intentions one of the first fallacies I was, uh, I was able to easily dispel years ago was the idea that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. To say Christianity is about 
loving God and not about rules and laws of righteousness sounds so good. But, of course, the fallacy is there's, it's one or the other. It's got to be this or that. It can't be both. And that was easily dispelled. It was really popular in the 1970s when I was at Irvine. It was being said all the time. And it was made, uh, it, w- it was a common phrase used by a, a quite a national uh, famous speaker. And the intention is understood. I mean, yeah, we don't want to be associated with the legalists and the traditions of ritualism and religion that way. But then I come across James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. And what? what? Christianity is a religion. The way it ought to be stated is Christianity is more than religion. It's a relationship. You see, other religions can go that far. They're, re- they're, they're religions, but there's no relationship. Yes, Christianity is a religion. Right there in the scriptures, it refers to pure religion. So I appreciate the intent, but it does it does create and lead to other problems, which I've I've seen. Particularly, I like to illustrate with the way international has said they have so much liberty in Christ and salvation by grace, they can go and do whatever they want. Differences in interpretations and the failure to see the fallacy of fallacy. Show the need and the importance of developing good thinking skills. And I'll wrap, it, wrap up my comments here. When interpreting the Word of God, we must have an attitude of humbled respect and reverence to do our very best to understand God's message correctly. And it does take humility and surrender and yieldness to the Spirit of God. It's imperative that we be yielded to the Spirit of God. And in control of our flesh and emotions. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.27, But I keep under my body and bring it under, into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. You see, the flesh is involved in the bias and the fallacies and misleading and twisting and, and distorting interpretations of God's word. And Paul wanted to preach truth and said, I bring my body under subjection. The last thing we want to do is mislead. Amen. Amen. What I've presented are very important lessons about recognizing fallacies resulting from poor and faulty thinking skills. Being sincere in your faith is not sufficient. Being sincere in your faith is not sufficient to protect you from wrong interpretations. There are skills to be developed. We can see that, and I've already made this point before in Hebrews chapter 5, where he talks about the exercising of our senses to discern good and evil. If you're not exercising properly, you're not exercising to discern good and evil, right and wrong. Discerning the Spirit of God. And... The other evidence is you've got godly men, preachers all over who are disagreeing. And uh, my good friend up there in Missouri, he said, we'll just agree to disagree. (laughs) Which was fine for both of us. That's not the case for many. It's not okay to be in disagreement with them because your spirituality is in question now because you don't agree with them, the fallacy of agreement. 
we need to we need to be humble and recognize there there's always we need to always be putting our interpretations to the test. We can always learn, we can always improve until we come into the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Amen. We're glad you joined us for our services here at Mission Boulevard Baptist Church. If this program has helped you and you would like to have more information about trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior, or if you would like to have resources to help you in your spiritual walk and growth, please email us at the address on your screen. We look forward to having you join us again online, but you are always welcome to personally attend any of our services at the Mission Boulevard Baptist Church here in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Hi, this is Dr. Patrick Briney. I hope and pray this important lesson has improved your life. For more life-changing lessons and to get your free book that I've written for you, visit my website at patrickbriney.com and please share this valuable lesson with at least three of your friends to enrich their lives in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll upload my next lesson for you soon. God bless.